Welcome to the Lost Books. Angel of Ophelian 7. In the alley outside the Lost Books Library, Odette, youthful but frail, stands at the far end of the alley. She carries herself as if she were always cold, always seeking warmth, and when she speaks, her voice seems carried by some sad melody. One of the leather-clad ruffians approaches. It's my turn, you can go, he says. No, I'm going to wait for her, says Odette, not taking her eyes off the library at the far end of the alley. The ruffian goes. Where are you, Dee? she asks. On the second floor of the library... James walks up to Asha. Is it all right if I keep you company? He asks, and she beams with a smile. The two walk along one of the well-lit aisles. Asha fidgets with her hair, happy to be alone with James, until James, says Dee as she approaches. Could you look at something with me? I'm sorry, says James. Can I look at it later? He turns back to Asha. Dee pulls out the dream cards she won from the strongman and holds them towards James. Could these help you remember? She asks. The strong man had a genuine fascination with them. Is it possible? Asks James as he takes two steps toward Dee and finds himself halfway between the two women. Dee can see James hesitating. Maybe you don't need them, says Dee, and she abruptly walks around the corner. Wait, says James. Asha, I'll be right back. And he follows Dee around the corner. Asha stands alone in the middle of the aisle. A few aisles over... Dee, wait, says James. I thought you weren't coming, says Dee. Can I see? James reaches for one of the dream cards, and Dee puts her hands behind her, causing James to put his arms around her. Asha looks down the aisle and sees them. She turns away and goes. James clasps the card and steps away from Dee. How does it work? You know as much about it as I do, says Dee. The two study the cards. Roll walks out from his study. He finds only Eli in the main room. Roll places the book, all that glitters, on the counter. Where's James? he asks. Eli calls out. James? Roll looks up as James and Dee appear on the second floor balcony. Where's Asha? asks Roll. James looks around but doesn't see her anywhere. Roll races up the stairs and down an aisle. James follows several steps behind. Roll turns a corner and spots an open book on the floor. He runs over to it, kneels down, and reads it silently. James runs around the corner to see Roll entering the book. On the shore of the dark lake, under the heavy gray of an overcast sky, Roll steps onto the pier, that same pier where he asked Asha to leave with him. Thirty yards off the end of the pier, he can see a figure in the water. It's Asha. She's struggling to stay afloat, and she goes under. Roll runs the length of the pier, makes a long leaping dive into the water, and swims hard toward where he saw her last. He dives down below the water, driving deeper and deeper. James reaches the shore, but sees only water. Under the water, Roll sees Asha sinking to the bottom and swims to her. He wraps his arm around her and pushes off the lake bottom, propelling them upward. They break the water's surface. She's unconscious as Roll swims with her toward the shore. James races down to the water's edge. Roll emerges from the shallows, carrying Asha to land. 
In the second floor aisle of the library, Carissa and Eli stand over Asha's open book. Roll appears with Asha in his arms, both soaking wet. What happened? asks Carissa. James appears from the book. Roll lays Asha down and Carissa begins CPR. James stands stunned as Asha coughs up water. That's all right, sweetheart, says Carissa, as the rest of the group gathers around them. Carissa holds Asha. You're fine, she says to both Asha and Roll. You're fine. Roll's fear turns into anger. He focuses it on James. Why did you leave her? I told you. You promised me. Do you think I'm playing a game with the safety of these people? Says Roll. He didn't know, says Carissa. Let's take her to her bed. Nether picks her up, and he and Carissa take Asha. I'm sorry, says James. Do you even understand what happened here? Asks Roll. She almost drowned? says James. She was supposed to drown, James. That's how the story that was written for her ends. She dies, and if she dies now... Roll sighs, turns his back to James, and goes to check on Asha. James leans heavily on the balcony, and Nether returns. He places his massive hand on James's shoulder. You didn't know, says Nether. Know what? asks James. Come with us, James, says Kay. Nether leads James, Kay, Shen, and Eli out of the dancing portal lights to a city street that resembles Toronto's Koreatown. The group watches people walking up and down the sidewalk. Then James sees something, or rather, someone, strange. Why does that person look different than all the others? That blue paleness, like they're walking through a fog that follows them everywhere. They were once free, says Eli. Free? says James. They're from the library? They were, says Kay. They let their old story take them, says Nether. Sometimes their old stories take them and end so... badly, Eli cringes. They died here, asks James. They died here after having been outside, says Kay. Sometimes a person isn't prepared for what's out there, so they choose to leave it behind, to return to what they know. Shen signs as Kay translates. They accept what they falsely believe is their fate. They lose every connection they had to the library, to the outside world, says Eli. They went back to their lives in their old stories, asks James. The person you're seeing there came back. They were liberated, but they came back to die in their old story. Now they're stuck here forever, says Kay. Irretrievable, says Nether, as he reaches out to touch the person in the fog only to have them slip like smoke through his massive fingers. James watches the person in the fog walk past. Are they ghosts? asks James as he studies the pale blue-gray absoluteness of their indifference. To them, we're the ghosts, says Eli, or the dream, and they all watch the figure walk into the distance, the trail of fog following. That's what could have happened to Asha? asks James. Kay nods. In the second-floor lounge of the library, wrapped in a blanket and drinking hot tea from a mug, Asha is comforted by Carissa and Roll. Visibly shaken, James enters, followed by Nether, Kay, Eli, and Shen. Dee leans against the corner of the hallway, watching all of them. James steps up to Asha. I was hoping I could, uh... Can I just say... I didn't mean... I... I promised Roll I would... I would keep you safe, Asha. And I'm so sorry. It's my fault you were even at risk. 
I asked Roll, well, I just want to say I'm sorry, Asha. I'm sorry to all of you. And I think it's time I took steps to regain my memory without putting everything on all of you, says James. I want to train at the Black Crucible. Roll studies James carefully, considering what he said. You'll need to pass the test at the gate, says Roll. The entire group walks out from the dancing portal lights at a tall gate in the wall of the Black Crucible. They enter and walk into an arena just within the entrance to join Roll, who stands with the Grand Master, a middle-aged man. His eyes shimmer like moonlight on water. His smile dances like moonlight on a knife. The Grand Master looks them over as James, growing anxious, steps out from the front of the group. This is the one you want us to accept? asks the Grand Master. I can smell the fear on him from here. He can't possibly be a candidate. Please, roll. Show us a champion worthy of training here. How about that one? The Grand Master points eagerly to Nether. I'd love to see him hit something as hard as he can. No? All right. There. He points to a place for James to stand, then glances over his shoulder to a warrior in kendo armor. Three other warriors in gray armor stand behind him. Quimby, calls the Grand Master, and the helmeted warrior steps to a rack of swords. The Grand Master calls out, Boken, and the warrior picks up two Boken hardwood swords from the rack. Shanai, says Roll. The Grand Master chuckles. Shanai. The warrior puts down the hardwood swords and picks up softer, more flexible bamboo practice swords. The Grand Master leans in to Roll. Shall I have them wrapped in tissue paper as well? The warrior approaches and hands one of the bamboo swords to James. James drops it, causing the Grand Master to glance at Roll. I'm not sure I can watch this, says Kay, as he and the others stand beside Roll. James picks up the bamboo sword, as the two warriors in grey tie protectors onto James's chest and arms. The Grand Master holds up three fingers to Roll, and Roll holds up five fingers back. The Grand Master nods begrudgingly. James... You have to score on him once before he scores on you five times, all right, says Roll. James grips his sword tightly with both hands. The Kendo warrior bows to him, and James clumsily bows back. Then they face each other with swords tip to tip. The warrior unleashes a series of five strikes that land rapidly and soundly on different areas of James's body. Five, says the Grand Master. So, not swords, then? He adds. Eli calls out, Did that hurt, James? That looked like it hurt. James walks back to the gate. Frustrated, he stares out at the glimmering porthole leading back to the library. He's filled with the desire to return to the comforts of his room and to the peacefulness of the rows and rows of books. He takes a long breath, regains his composure, and returns to the arena, the Grand Master, and the Kendo Warrior. We could make it 100 to 1 and he would still fail, says the Grand Master. I'll take 10, says James. This makes the Grand Master's dangerous smile flash. He nods to the Kendo warrior. And with swords at the ready, the two face each other again. The warrior faints, then launches an attack, striking James three times. James notices the Grand Master hold up three fingers at him. The swordsman sets himself and looks calm. He pretends to sheath his sword, pressing it against his belt, and shows his now empty hand to James. 
James knows it's a trap and takes a quick step forward. The warrior draws his sword and attacks in one motion. James leans back, lowering his sword, and as the swordsman advances to collect his next blow, James's sword pokes him on the toe. Stop, calls the Grand Master. The two stand there with the tip of James's sword on the warrior's toe. The Grand Master calls out again. Joshi. Scurrying is heard in the distance. Then, a boy appears, carrying a uniform and a wooden tablet with an inscription. He runs across the arena and holds it out between James and the Grand Master. This is your uniform. Take care of it. This is the code of the Black Crucible, says the Grand Master, handing James an engraved wooden tablet. I expect you to be able to recite it from memory. The group gathers around James, congratulating him. The Grand Master steps back to speak with Roll. It's a mistake, you know. He'll never make it, says the Grand Master. This is the student you want to endorse. Roll nods. It's time for his training to begin, says the Grand Master. And the group says their goodbyes. James looks over. Roll is already walking away. We'll visit soon, promises Eli. And the group walks off toward the portal. I don't think James will be the same after this, says Eli. I don't think the library will ever be the same after this, says Kay. Will he be all right, Roll? asks Carissa. I don't know, he says. The group vanishes into the dancing portal lights, and the dancing portal lights disappear. James follows the boy into the complex. James is guided down an arched hallway by the young Joshi. This place is impressive, says James. You're so lucky you get to train here, says Joshi excitedly. Something on the wall catches James's attention. It's a stone mosaic depicting a story. A man climbs out of a pit, travels across a prairie to a tower, and climbs to the top of it. He holds his hand toward the sky. James's eyes widen when he sees the next image, which takes up the entire wall. It's a picture of that man, his hand reaching to the sky, but this time his hand is encircled with a disk of light that seems to penetrate all shadow and darkness. Who is that? he asks. He's the greatest warrior, grand master, and leader the Black Crucible has ever known. Light hand, says Joshi. Light hand, says James, staring at the picture. He feels curiosity welling up inside of him. The Black Crucible has been, since its founding, the greatest martial arts academy in the world. Light Hand made it far greater. He made it so much more, says Joshi. He's a teacher here? asks James. He's the head of the Black Crucible, says Joshi. He came here with nothing and rose to the most incredible heights. James can hear the wonder in the boy's voice. Is he holding his hand in front of the sun for a reason? asks James. That's not the sun. While training here, he harnessed phenomenal power, beyond anything anyone had ever seen. They say it glows like a disk of light around his hand. They say it's a power from another dimension. James stares at the picture, that hand with fingers outstretched, a disk, like a sun, shining all around it. Yep, he's the greatest, I'm going to meet him someday, says the boy walking down the hallway. James reemerges from a room, dressed in his new uniform. The Grand Master strolls into the hall. It's time for your second assessment, he says. They enter a small gymnasium with elevated seating and viewing areas. The Grand Master joins four warriors, two men and two women, at a long table. Who are they? asks James, as Joshi leads him to the center of the gym. The four headmasters, says Joshi, 
The Grand Master addresses James. Will you honor yourself in all your efforts here and conduct yourself with honor, within and beyond these grounds? asks the Grand Master. I will, says James. Will you learn the code of the Black Crucible? And Joshi, will you show him how to tie a belt? I can't look at that anymore, says the Grand Master. Learn the code, he sighs. I sincerely hope you do honor to the man who brought you here. A distant mission bell chimes, and Joshi steps away, leaving James alone before the table of masters. A fighter in a black mask and black uniform walks in to stand beside James. The man, more muscular and more athletic than James, is imposing. He bows to the masters at the table. James bows, too. This is your skills assessment, James. Do whatever you can to incapacitate or subdue this man, says the Grand Master. The fighter in the black mask turns idly to face James and bows. James bows just as awkwardly as before. The man places his hands leisurely on his belt and assumes a loose fighting stance. He gestures for James to attack. I, I, I don't really want to hit him, says James. The first headmaster yells out, and the masked warrior punches James in the stomach. James hunches over, gasping for breath. Okay, squeaks James. I want to hit him a little. James, raising his fists, squares off with his opponent. The fighter stands there. With his hands down, James launches two lackluster punches that the warrior easily avoids. The four headmasters turn to the Grandmaster with questioning glances. The Grandmaster gets up and walks over to the two fighters. James, he won't move this time. Strike him with any part of your body. Can you hit him? asks the Grandmaster. James studies his stationary opponent. I don't want to, he says. Good, says the Grandmaster. An honest answer. Now we are one step closer to finding the fighting style that fits your nature. We must find the discipline that fits your nature. Your nature determines the discipline, not the other way around. The Grandmaster returns to his seat, and one of the female headmasters calls out, Ready? This time, the fighter in the black mask puts up his hands and starts moving, like a tiger about to take down its prey. James doesn't know what to do. Begin, shouts the headmaster, and the warrior rushes in at James with his fists slicing through the air. James fumbles back, grabbing the masked warrior's arm as he does. He falls backward, pulling the man with him, and as James hits the ground, pulling the fighter with him out of reflex, the warrior trips over him and sprawls to the mat. Everyone is caught by surprise, especially James. The Grandmaster looks over to the first headmaster, who is already nodding. Then he looks over at the other three. They all smile or shrug in agreement, and one of them says, Yoko Otoshi, and another agrees. With a glance, the Grandmaster sends the glaring masked warrior in black away. Okay, James, says the Grandmaster. We know what your primary discipline is going to be. Judo. Half your training will be spent exploring your strengths in your primary discipline of judo, the gentle way, and half your time will be spent covering fundamentals from other fighting disciplines while shoring up any weaknesses you currently possess. The Grandmaster gets up and leads James out. Now I'll introduce you to your teacher. Joshi runs up and gives James a towel. That was awesome, James. And judo is the same primary discipline that Light Hand himself started with. James follows the Grandmaster into a training room. 
An extraordinary row of punching bags, targets, and pads is in an even line down the entire length of the room. James can't help but be impressed by the military precision of it all. Grandmaster, says a man behind them. From the hallway emerges Harley, a man of contradictions. Polite even to the point of seeming almost delicate, but James can sense the fierceness of this man. The man bows graciously to the Grandmaster. James, this is Harley. He'll be your teacher. He'll also lead you through your third assessment, says the Grandmaster. Third assessment? asks James. Kicking, striking, trapping, throwing and takedowns, ground fighting, says Harley. These are the five areas of practice for you, he says. Since you're studying judo, you'll focus your remaining time on kicking, striking, and fighting in the trap, along with training in one weapon, says Harley. Your third assessment covers fundamental techniques, the Grandmaster interjects. We want to find those techniques you have that feel most natural for you. That's the doorway in. Pick one technique from each range and learn to apply it. That's how we'll start. Practice them all, but focus on applying one from each range. James follows his teacher through a series of hand strikes, then a series of kicks, then striking with headbutt, knees, and elbows. They reach the end of the line of targets, and James slumps over to catch his breath. Which hand strike did you feel most comfortable with? asks the Grandmaster. James huffs. The first one? Lead hand strike, says Harley. Which kick? asks the Grandmaster. The roundhouse? says James. No, says the Grandmaster. The front kick for you. And obviously not the headbutt. So, knees or elbows, which felt stronger for you? The knee, says James. And finally, says Harley, pointing to a wall of weapons, pick one. James looks them over. He pulls the nunchaku from the wall, and the Grandmaster gently takes them away. No, not for you, he says as he puts them back. James sees a shinai, the same bamboo sword he used when he was accepted into the Black Crucible. He picks it up, swings it from side to side, and accidentally hits Harley. Oops, sorry, says James sincerely. Eat well, rest well. Tomorrow morning your training at the Black Crucible begins says the Grand Master as he walks away. Joshi leads James out and across the main quad. Across the yard from them is the central tower of the Black Crucible. That's the tower, says James. That's where Lighthand is? Joshi nods.